All right. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. So go ahead and turn there. Continuing our study through this second book by Luke about the kingdom of God. Last week we saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, how the Holy Spirit came and filled the disciples and how they were speaking in other languages. How the people who were hearing, people from places all over, were amazed and perplexed because they heard these disciples speaking the mighty works of God, proclaiming the gospel in their own native languages. An incredible moment in church history. And today the story continues. If you remember, there were many in the text last week who were amazed. There are also some, it says, who were skeptical. And rather than asking the important question, what does this mean? They simply dismissed it and said the disciples were drunk. They were filled with new wine. We come to the text today and see that Peter steps forward in the midst of this to explain what is actually happening. And so let's stand together and follow along as I read the text. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. So Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of your word, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Help us to be a people who call upon your name. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Verse 14 begins, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now we need to notice what just happened here. Previously, Peter had denied Jesus three times. He was afraid, fearful of what would happen if he identified himself with Jesus who had been arrested. He was ashamed after he heard the rooster crow, remembering that Jesus had told him that he would deny him three times. In fact, in Luke's gospel account, he says that when the rooster crowed the third time, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? It says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, there's a wonderful account that John gives of Jesus calling Peter 
to himself after his resurrection and encouraging him to care for the flock. A beautiful picture of reconciliation and, and even more so the mercy and grace of Jesus on those who deny him. He calls him and encourages him to take care of the flock, care for the people entrusted to him, and we're seeing just that here in this text today. Peter has been transformed from this fearful person, not wanting to be identified with Jesus, doubting even after, um, just hours after his resurrection when he heard that Jesus was raised, to now stepping forward to be the spokesperson for these disciples in front of many people who are wondering what is happening. It's a wonderful thing. He steps forward and lifts up his voice and addresses them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now what's Peter saying? There's something you have to know. Listen to what I'm telling you. That's what Peter begins with. It's a call for, in the words of Jesus, all who have ears to hear, to hear, to listen. These people want to know what is going on and what it means. And Peter's saying that he has the answer to their questions. Verse 15, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, some of them had accused them of being drunk, and Peter responds, that's, that's not what's happening. They're definitely not drunk since it's only 9 a.m. Too early to be drunk, Peter says. And so what's the implication there? There has to be something else going on. So listen to what I'm telling you, Peter says. You imagine the confusion of the people. They're bewildered and they're probably afraid. They've never seen anything like this before. So it's important in that context that they're able to listen, to engage, and to hear what Peter has to tell them. In verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now Peter says that what they're witnessing What's taking place isn't just people being crazy, isn't drunkenness. It's actually what the prophet Joel wrote about hundreds of years before that. This moment on the day of Pentecost was was being challenged. And Peter is explaining that what was happening was actually anticipated, had been prophesied. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it's a chapter that begins with the judgment of the day of the Lord. Then flows gloriously into the pouring out of divine blessings. Material blessings and spiritual blessings. And Peter here is connecting for these hearers that the spiritual blessing that has come this day on Pentecost is the ultimate spiritual blessing. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verses 17 and 18 then. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, 
that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, there is a lot here in just these two verses. But getting into it, we cannot miss what Peter references here from Joel's prophecy and applies to what is happening presently for Peter in Jerusalem. And what is that? And in these last days, it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days. That's an important connection that Peter is making. And we see it throughout the remainder of the New Testament. What does it mean? Remember that Peter is speaking here to devout men. That's what he says, or what the text says earlier. Devout followers of Judaism. And these are people, along with many, many others, who studied and studied and memorized and prayed over and even puzzled over Hebrew scriptures which spoke of terrible things that would happen. But then also about a time where those things would be reversed. When God would bring his people to a new place and do very new things with them, wonderful things. So imagine people struggling to understand. People who have devoted time, their lives to studying and reading and memorizing and struggling to understand, praying over these ancient texts to find meanings in times of great stress and sorrow. And Peter stands up to them and says to them, it's now. It's here. Some of those texts spoke of the signs that they would now see or that they've just seen. Peter stands up and, and summarizing it a lot, says, you've arrived. Now, did it look to the people in Jerusalem as if they have arrived at the promises to come? Probably not. But that's what Peter is telling them. The time has come. It's here. We're now in the last days. That, that term last days was a general term for the time to come. The time when promises would be fulfilled. The time when the story of God would arrive at its climax and all sorts of new things would start to happen. This is so important for us today to understand as well. Because we sometimes live as if we are still in Old Testament times. Still waiting for the promises to come. Still waiting for the kingdom. Peter says, no, you've arrived. New creation has begun. In other words, new creation starts with God's own people. 
And so what is the new? What are, what are the new things, the new way of God doing things? Well, we see some of those in these verses. He's poured out His Spirit. We saw that last week and will continue to. And it says, through that, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. Wow. Is that good news? Is the new creation good news? Maybe not for everyone. It's good news, though. But up to this point, God has acted by His Spirit among His people. We know that. This is not the beginning arrival of the Holy Spirit. We've seen evidences and and, and, and Scripture about the Holy Spirit acting among his people. So what's so significant with this coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2? Well, now the way is open for the Spirit to fill and work through everyone. Before, it had always been by guiding or inspiring one person here or one or two There, kings and prophets and priests and righteous men and women. N.T. Wright comments here, Now, in a sudden burst of fresh divine energy released through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's Spirit has been poured out upon a lot of people all at once. There is no discrimination between slaves and free, male and female, young and old. They are all marked out side by side as the nucleus of God's true people. Look even at how this began. Not in the temple. This, this text, this account is not happening in the temple. It's not in the rabbinical schools. It's in the upper room where Jesus' friends and family have gathered and are praying and worshiping, devoting themselves to Him. And there is, Peter says, there's no category of people left out. Both genders, all ages, all social classes. It's wonderful. God's Spirit won't be assigned only to the priests and the prophets and the lawgivers, but to who? It says, all flesh. Now, that may have upset some of Peter's critics who devoted themselves to the Hebrew Scriptures, but Peter's saying, this is good news of new creation, and they've already tasted it. Immediately. Immediately at the coming of the Spirit. Verse 11 says that they were hearing all of them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. I want to pause here. While while Peter didn't stop here to make any clarifying points about class or status or gender Most of us, 
are likely thinking through how Peter's preaching at Pentecost, this upside-down kingdom he's talking about, fits with what we know is coming later in the New Testament. Texts like 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul writes, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, that the role of elder is purposely reserved for men in the church. Men who are qualified based on the things that he writes, what Paul writes in a few verses later in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And also just as a side note, as we're considering Paul writing that to Timothy, we often overlook that the same Timothy who Paul wrote to in chapter 2 of his letter is the son and grandson of Lois and Eunice. Two women whose faith in the Lord he highly commends in his second letter and who he rejoices in for having raised Timothy up in the scriptures. Women filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to proclaim the gospel in their spaces of influence. Now, we are a complementarian church. Meaning, we believe that part of God's goodness in creation is that he created men and women distinctly and complementarily. They are equal and meant to complement or enhance each other. It wasn't good that Adam was alone. He couldn't fulfill the creation mandate alone. And so a fitting mate to complement him, Eve, was created so that they could fulfill that mandate together. And in so doing, men and women function in a distinct and complementary way, or in, in distinct and complementary ways, including in the church. At the same time, I want to say, as I've said for several years now, I believe that complementarian churches gravitate towards not biblical complementarianism, but authoritarianism. Meaning that we've taken the words of Scripture, what the Bible says, and then added to them to put safeguards around God's Word. But that's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus didn't have kind things to say about it. We see from Acts 2 and onward the wonderful ways that God uses women by the power of the Spirit to advance His kingdom, both in the context of the church and in the day-to-day -day lives of living as believers in this world. Women like Lydia and Priscilla and like Phoebe several women in the church in Rome. We know from Paul that women were praying and prophesying in the church in Corinth. We, we read that in 1 Corinthians 11, which is a wonderful picture of the fulfillment of the text that we're in today. And so I want to encourage you today, women. And let me say here, including single women who may feel like they are an overlooked or unneeded part of the new creation, the kingdom of God, the church. You are loved, desired, 
welcomed and needed. Any exclusion that you feel is the fault of the culture we've created in the church, not the Holy Spirit. We want you to know that God does not look at you as some second-class citizen of His kingdom. He wants to use you to tell the mighty works of God. So let's keep moving forward. Peter has said, using the words of Joel, what would be, in the words of the Hebrew Scriptures, what would be just became it happened. What was promised is coming true. The things you've waited for are now. And he continues in verses 19 and 20, and I'll show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. That kind of feels weird, right? I mean, you see those two prior verses and you're like, wow, this is like, I, we just sang a worship song. And then you get to these two verses and you're like, whoa, what in the world? You took a huge downer, Joel and Peter. But what is this? This is interesting. I think to help us here, we have to remember what Peter said to them to begin this speech. It's the first thing that Peter says to them is this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. What you're seeing is not people who are drunk, but what you are seeing is what was prophesied through the prophet Joel. We sometimes will read things in the Bible literally that weren't intended to be understood that way. Remember from our series, How We Got the Bible, genre matters. Apocalyptic language is often not to be taken Literally, as if exactly what is described is what is going to happen. You think about Mark 13. In Mark 13, Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man. And in that text, he uses language about the sun and the moon being darkened and stars falling and heavenly bodies shaken. Those things are language, just as, just as they are in the Old Testament. They're language for sociopolitical disaster with cosmic imagery to underscore how significant these times would be. Peter's saying this is earth-shattering news, not a literal cosmic meltdown. It's not a weather report. And if you struggle with that, again... Remember that much of what Jesus said in Mark 13 was fulfilled in A.D. 70. He was speaking of what was going to take place in A.D. 70. So not all of it is meant to be taken literally. People in the early church age wouldn't have taken Peter or Joel's words here literally. Those who were used to the language of biblical prophecy knew well enough that these were regular ways of referring to what we would call earth-shattering news or earth-shattering events, apocalyptic language. 
things in society and global politics that would shake to the foundations what we call the fabric of society. Times that would be terrifying. Times of great instability and uncertainty. But with all of that, look at the end of verse 20. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So yes, Peter assures we are now, and they were then, living in the last days. God's kingdom come. But there is a last day that is coming, a very last day. That day is referred to as the day of the Lord. Christians believe that we are living, just as the early church believed, in a period of time between the moment when the last days had been inaugurated and the moment when even those last days would come to an end on the day of the Lord, the moment when with Jesus' final reappearance, as the angels referenced in chapter 1, verse 11, heaven and earth would be joined together in the great coming renewal of all things. We hope for that day. We long for that day. That day, the coming day of the Lord is, it says, is great. And the day is magnificent. It's the hope of every Christian, the fulfillment of his kingdom. His kingdom has been inaugurated. Now it is here. Now it will be fulfilled on that day. When God will dwell with us and we with him. But this good news, great and wonderful news, is for who? Verse 21 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the hope of the gospel. The time of salvation has come. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, for Peter here, the Lord is Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. We're going to see that more in verses 22 through 26 that we're going to look at next week. Joel, when he wrote this, meant Israel's God, Yahweh. And now Peter's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of this great news. All who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That phrase, call on the name of the Lord, means that there is faith in calling out to Him. Faith that He can help. Faith that He can save. Faith that He and He alone is able to rescue because He and He alone willingly took the penalty for sin that we all deserve. That He and He alone died and was raised to life. That He and he alone conquered sin and death. Calling on the name of the Lord is calling out in faith. But also calling on the name of the Lord doesn't mean you understand all of the doctrines of the Bible. 
No, it means you trust. You trust in Jesus to rescue you from this present evil age. And that he saves you and gives you, whether you are a son or a daughter, a young man or an old man, a male servant or a female servant, whatever gender you are, male or female, or whatever class you are, rich or poor, whatever generational demographic you are, young or old, Jesus saves without discrimination and grants his Holy Spirit freely to you. And this statement from Joel that Peter says here, announces here is a promise and it's also an invitation. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Now we're going to see the blessed fruit of that in the verses that come in this chapter and it's glorious. But we also want to consider that for ourselves. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I would ask you, have you called upon the name of the Lord in faith? Faith that truly is believing that he is who he said he is. And that he accomplished what he said he accomplished. And that he and he alone is the hope for the world. One of the ways that we profess this belief, this faith, is through the Lord's Supper. As Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming, we believe this. We are people who have and continue to call upon the name of the Lord. We believe. We trust that you are able to save. And then in your mercy and your grace, you freely save. And so as we are dismissed row by row to come and receive the bread and the cup, take it back to your seats, I would encourage you to consider, are you believing? Are you trusting? And the one and only one who could save. If today you would come and you say, I've never called upon the name of the Lord. I've never, I've never trusted in him. I've never been at a place where I felt like I could possibly do that. Then I would encourage you at this point in the service, as others are dismissed to come forward, just, just take this time instead of taking a, a, a cracker and a cup of juice that are meant to, to be symbols, to be emblems, things that remind us of of the true Savior, His true body and His true blood. They're just symbols that remind us of that. Instead of partaking of the symbols, that you would consider partaking of the true one, of Jesus today. That you would consider today calling upon the name of the Lord in faith and be saved. He promises it. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. You're good. And Lord, every single thing you do is good. We are completely unworthy. Because we're grateful. 
Grateful for Jesus. Grateful for the truth of the gospel. Grateful for the kingdom that has grateful for the kingdom that has come. We pray that you help us, Lord. Those of us who have called upon your name, that you would help us to walk and and reflect this new and better kingdom that you have brought through your spirit. That we would continue to proclaim, to announce the mighty works of God. That others would see and hear how truly wonderful you are. Help us, we pray, Lord. And if there's anyone here who has not yet trusted in you, who has not called on your name, God, I pray that you would give them faith. Help them to know without a doubt that you are true, that you are faithful, that you are God. And that you love them. And that you're so gracious. So merciful. Give them faith to know and believe. And to call on your name. To be saved from this present evil age. To have the hope of being with you forever and ever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.